0: Hello, this is Social Evolution. My name is Michael Borcelli, and I'm joined here with my co-host.
1: Max Borders here. Good to be with you all.
0: And today, we're going to talk about a pretty contemporary topic in society. It's a hot topic if you've been following the news and the headlines over the past few years, especially. Uh, Cryptocurrencies, tokens distributed ledger technologies. And instead of noodling in on the technical details of all this, we're going to try to think about it in terms of like, why does this matter for the future of humanity, which is the central organizing principle here at social evolution. And we try to look at that past, present and future of humanity through the lens of institution, culture and technology. And this is very much focused on the technology part of it. And Max, why should we care? Why does this matter? Get us
1: into this topic. Well, from that big macro perspective, I think you nailed, you nailed it. And that is technology in this case is dragging along institutions and culture, mm. kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing because it's just rife with possibility. Um, now, we should, we should, Michael Porcelli, <laughs> let our listeners know that what this episode is not about. Because there's plenty of shit like, like you you know you could hear out there. For example, this is not about price predictions of individual tokens. This is not about uh, highly technical details of the technology. We'll touch on some of that. After all, you are a computer scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but we really want to talk about the implications of this technology in the lives of of human beings all around the world. Right. So.
0: In a way, you know, you might hear about people, you know, trying to just get rich with the whatever or, you know, nerds geeking out on the technical details of these things. But sometimes you'll hear like little wisps of a conversation of like, well, what are the implications of Bitcoin or Ethereum or blockchains, distributed ledgers? Like, how does this ideas of governance and like somehow that there's some more fundamental possible ways of actually restructuring society in a way that's better than what we the systems and institutions we currently have but it seems almost a little utopian
1: when people start talking about this let's let's think of it as a tech stack right Uh uh-huh there is a moral political layer to the tech stack
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm
1: okay so every time a coder makes a choice uh, in terms of developing a which is a distributed application mm-hmm. or a decentralized application, mm-hmm. um, they're making certain kind of choices about the ways humans can interact and should interact with each other. Yeah, and those choices uh, represent a moral core, or a uh, to to go with the stack metaphor, a moral pol- a moral political or cultural layer. And I think what has happened with the rise of these tokens and this this sort of get-rich-quick psychology and the rest of it is that it it tends to try to leave behind that moral cultural layer. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do, at least what I want to do with this, is not only talk about some of the implications, some of the history, past, present, and future, Mm -hmm. but also what it is and what it means uh, to have technology be informed by moral cultural choices okay yep Yep. and that's and that's really um that's an not only an important feature of this conversation it is a it's going to be i believe necessary for it to continue to flourish grow and um propagate itself around the world this ain't about money this is about morality this ain't about coins. It's about culture. Uh, this ain't, this ain't about, uh, token transfers. This is about transformation of society. So,
0: Ooh, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, what I'm reminded of at this, you know, I I definitely want to, you know, do the thing that we usually do and do the past, present and future in a moment. But the thing that you just reminded me of as you were talking was a really cool book I read. It was, it was, uh, Lawrence Lessig's first book in the 90s called Code. He's revised it and has a Code 2.0. And this idea that code, computer code, is not just like something that's just purely mathematical, like the solution to a problem or a structured form of logic, although it is those things, right? It is the embedding, and this is this is his argument, is like as we network together many computers, this was a very early internet mm-hmm. timeframe when he wrote this book, and... He's basically saying, look, you know, these choices that we make in terms of how the user interface works or what the what the business logic of the whatever the application is, the system that we're using, the piece of software they're using, it carries within it essentially some moral or ethical valence. It carries some implementation of policy and those policies are essentially grounded back in the human world in in a very analogous way. You might sort of say like um, legislators or lawyers and judges, they do things like parse this like legalese stuff that's sort of written on paper, right? And all those volumes mm-hmm. on the, on the walls of the the legal offices and like so Right. But they're like they read it and they think through it. And it's, it, almost, it almost has this sort of weird specialized legalized legalese syntax, very similar to how computer code has a very specialized syntax. Yeah. And, you know, instead of a, a, a computer chip sort of executing the code, it's the brains of the lawyers going like, hmm, what does this mean? Right. And essentially, the, it's like a a corpus of text, you might say, that is collectively evolving through time and giving us sort of like a a means by which we arbitrate disputes and settle on, you know, decisions what justice actually means when it's applied on a case by case basis, how, you know, social incentives are structured, you know, legally and so forth. Lessig is basically saying, hey computer science world, what you're doing when you're coding massive multi-user systems is similar to that activity it's actually equivalent in a way it's the implementation of policy and that is you know that actually stretches way back to the psychology of computer science in an interesting way which is like what we write in computer code is we we choose to write this code versus that code because it's meaningful to us as humans it's not just a pure abstraction i mean some theoretical parts of computer science deal with sort of pure mathematical problems but in a way like the day-to-day thing that most computer programmers, computer scientists are dealing with is how do we translate something that is essentially something that humans care about, right, in our social world into code that sort of carries out that function or some slice of a social function. And that's pretty a pretty radical idea by connecting these two things was something that, that Lessig did, I think, in a very powerful way. And it was, I sort of thought of as, as a milestone in the foundation of, of crypto law, really, which is kind of a background of cryptocurrency and all this stuff we're talking about.
1: Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if this is the particular book in question, but the Lessig quote, Code as Law, mm-hmm. um, gets interpreted at, at the very least by people in the crypto community as saying we are essentially rewriting in code mm-hmm. using cryptography. What is legal or illegal? what is mm-hmm. permissible or impermissible? yep and the interesting thing about that idea is that if you go back to you know uh eric Hughes uh and um uh, the the crypto anarchist manifesto, what was his name uh in any case, we'll put it in the show notes because yep. the show notes are better than Max's memory that's a, you know early onset <laughs> dementia but in any case um these these early, early adopters of cryptography understood that they were creating a space of the permissible mm-hmm. that was that was the, the only argument to that was power. Mm-hmm. There was no argument that at least in their minds. About the permissibility of peaceful human exchange, for example, or peaceful human communication, or mm-hmm. private communication, mm-hmm. these were all values that they held. And there's almost like this sense of it's not to say that these tools won't be misused for all manner of nefarious purposes. Um, they already are, but, <laughs> but so are hammers, sure. right? You can you can kill your spouse with your hammer. You know, yep. you can house. Uh, you know um, all kinds, you know, child pornography in your home, the mm. tool is not the crime, right? Right. But they want to be able to monitor society as some kind of, with some kind of giant panopticon in order to be able to control the behavior of actors in society. But some of these, some of the possible behaviors, permissible behaviors or impermissible behaviors, ex ante mm-hmm. became permissible um, mm-hmm. I don't want to have my transactions with another person monitored. Mm-hmm. I don't want my dealings to involve the imprimatur of a powerful third party for, who, from my standpoint, is arbitrarily shutting down peaceful, mm-hmm. commercial mm-hmm. or communicative exchange. Mm-hmm. And these guys really were that is the kind of cultural bedrock, if you like to some of the uh some of the early folks at, at inventing this stuff the yes. david chelms the the nick shabos of the world yes. the the you know way die uh some of these early Hal Finney. they were all part of this sort of cypherpunk movement mm-hmm. that believed in some essential idea of uh not just a uh, law as justice, but rather justice as law hmm. And that we have we have really inverted that in the question mm-hmm. of how justice gets discovered through the interactions of people involved in th- free association we get emergent law, we get common law we get con- cultural phenomena about you know emergent culture which we've talked about in other episodes um, but with the inversion, we have this idea of elites, In some sort of supposed deliberative process that ideally is going to be free of corruption and special interest capture and all this stuff. And through that sausage making, justice is going to be born and justice comes out of our capitals. Mm -hmm. These guys said horseshit. Justice is a discovery process among human beings uh, living together, hopefully peacefully. But when there are frictions. The law is an emergent property of reducing those frictions through that discovery process. And this revolution is more like that than it is Justinian law.
0: Yes. So let me see if I'm following everything you're saying here. Cause you know, I think there's some things that I'm, I'm getting, and this is actually starting to kind of pull, pull us into the historical past, which I love as a kind of touch point before we spring off into the future. What what I'm hearing here is. These early innovators, right? Like you you mentioned, um, you know, actually some d- d- digit cash or eCash or this kind of idea that came out of the 80s. You know, this these predecessors from maybe like mm-hmm. 30 bit Bitgold. 30 bit these things way preceded Bitcoin, which was 2009 Satoshi Nakamoto white paper that kind of really actually sort of solved what these folks were trying to solve for but like their their ethos right their values their their justification for what they were doing was something akin to like look the the way that there are these central controls central mm-hmm. banks and then their clients the commercial banks and other kinds of ways that markets are regulated by the state are actually uh, constraining exchange that otherwise, you know, free citizens might want to do with each other. And I mean, this is, this is a little bit of a kind of classic tension between something like, I suppose, you know, like s- statutory Napoleonic law from the European continent versus kind of English common law, which is a little bit more emergent mm-hmm. or the difference between yeah. something like a, a libertarian, political order which is sort of like you know let a thousand flowers bloom like the the keep the state as a minimalistic sort of entity so that we just allow for freedom and for there to be like you
1: said discovery along the way oh, and and to mute the aspirations of empires right. right yeah I mean one of the common things about empires is think about the the Romans uh not the Roman Republic but the Roman Empire right. Um, And, you know, this is a blurring together. There was, you know, territorial expansion of the Republic for sure. Mm -hmm. And yet that and that's marked by the Republican form more than it is about territorial expansion. Mm -hmm. And yet we are seeing we see very similar patterns Mm -hmm. with Britannia, with Rome and with the, you know, United States, which is the expansion of empire um around the world mm-hmm. our military empire extends to 800 bases around the world that's insane um and you know that is a powerful powerful juggernaut of a military hierarchy that needs to be fed daily with yep. billions of dollars okay so how do you do that if you don't have enough money to do well you have to engage in debt spending and if you engage in debt spending you have to control the currency of a society so one of the biggest intermediaries is the imperial state. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I am not—I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but just to say, look at the patterns of history. The guys who were working on this strong cryptop- cryptography were under, fully understood the lessons of history. Mm-hmm. And that is the first thing you want to do is control the currency, have it be by, by fiat, which is why we have the word fiat currency. It means I deem it so. Yeah, decree. Right? Yeah. By decree. And through that decree, for example, in Rome, you got a ducat or whatever the hell they called it, probably different things over the years, but you would have a piece of silver of a certain size and weight. Yeah. And over years and years, every time they would put that imprimatur, that stamp of the ducat with the face of the emperor on it, mm-hmm. every couple of years or so, that silver would be less and less a, a proportion of the total coin. Mm -hmm. And that was literally adulterating the silver or debasing the currency. Mm -hmm. Today, we do that through sophisticated uh, mathematical processes like quantitative easing or adding zeros to the number. Mm -hmm. So we have so many dollars chasing too few goods and that ends up being inflationary, Mm -hmm. but that, that power to inflate that that intimate and unholy connection between central banks and governments has always been there and that though you know you have this this halo effect that sometimes central bankers want to put on in terms of our goal is employment our goal is stability of the currency what what you know it's like whatever property you like can own is not available in a monolithic system of currencies they only have one set of properties mm-hmm. and in the crypto re- revolution we said not only do we want to intermediate the financial system disintermediate the financial system yeah. for example banks yeah. and and central banks uh, we want to introduce certain properties that would make the money the digital money deflationary that can cause a certain degree of volatility But Mm -hmm. that is also a byproduct that some people are willing to accept, particularly in the age of let's give people free money for COVID. And so now Mm -hmm. we're in an era where where there is a a war in the evolutionary fitness landscape where markets and the power of persuasion to come into certain kinds of systems protected by cryptography. On the one hand, central banks entrenched incumbent institutions on the other and this war is going to get is going to heat up, yeah. And I think the best and brightest minds of, of the in the world need to be prepared for that eventuality.
0: Yeah, cool. This is it's it's fascinating. Like you know, we're we're kind of on the cusp, and you know, this emerging crypto economics is really you know, and what we're doing as well in talking about it, maybe more in a theoretical sense, is, is trying to. Think about w- what is exactly that social function that mm-hmm. you know we're we're both sort of criticizing, but I want to kind of do maybe a, a good parts version, which is like, hey, this it's an it's a social emergent, right? You know, this kind of goes way back. You know the and you know, the historical antecedents stretch. I mean, I can't exactly know know when you any of us really can, but you know circa 12,000 years ago humans settled from the paleolithic to the neolithic they stopped being essentially nomadic hunter gatherer clans and they started to kind of gather especially during certain kind of times of the year like post harvest to mm-hmm. like these temple locations i think they recently discovered one it's for the oldest one they've ever found yeah. but we, we get together and like in a, a certain priestly class Emerges at that time. You might say this is sort of the the earliest middlemen, or maybe you could say it's sort of the evolution of the the chieftain or the or the you know. I mean, the, both.
1: Uh, it's funny that you're you're talking about this because it just is only now occurring to me. Yeah, that with the agri- settled agriculture, you get this co-emergence of the money changers. Yes, right. The money changers. Um, yes, which you know the stereotype is about the Jews because that's the biblical that's the biblical you know stuff we won't like to talk about. Yep. And and having now having a married into a J- Jewish family and having a Jewish daughter, mm-hmm. you know, I like to be sensitive about these stereotypes, but also they exist for a reason. Mm-hmm. OK. Mm-hmm. And there's a there a co-evolution of, of Jewish diaspora and mm-hmm. being accountants and money lenders. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting one. In parallel with that. Yeah. You get with settled agriculture, the tax man. You get this. Yeah. Um, it is a I mean, it, you can. You can deny it all you like, but James C. Scott really did the good work in this book called *Against the Grain*, and he basically argues that the the state originated and more or less still is a protection racket.
0: It's uh-huh. like
1: I'm gonna come and take a little bit of your grain, and in exchange, I'm gonna te- protect you from other people who are gonna come and offer you the same deal only yeah. worse or yeah. a similar deal only worse. Yeah. And when seen in that light these proto imperial powers this yeah. tribal chieftain or this asshole that comes along and gives you this deal yeah. it's like well that's a pretty good deal because now our agriculture is settled we can't go anywhere i'm not strong enough to fight it at least this guy's going to be able to fight off all the other brigands that come yeah. along yeah yeah and we get we get a hierarchy where the warrior class is essentially on top but in parallel with that we get these middlemen who are able to supply some sort of proto market function yeah. What is that all about?
0: Well, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. It's it's almost like the nerdiest of the nerds and the jockiest of the jocks sort of like team up and they go, <laughs> we'll, we'll do like this central like planning or whatever, proto central planning. But, you know, I, I sort of like, let's, let's argue for it from a, just a benign or a, or maybe a less sinister point of view. It's, it's, it's like, um, ra- it's a little bit of a transaction cost thing as well. Like I, why should I, as a shepherd, have to, like, independently negotiate all kinds of deals all over the place? I mean, maybe with my neighbors I do, but, like, you can show I can't up. afford it. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, so let's essentially offload some of this function, and some of the function is the protection, and some of the mm-hmm. function is math, right? Like, or something, right? Like, you know, where the weights and the measures and, you know... You'll roll up with your little wagon with your oxen full of your shit, and then they'll roll up with their wagon, and we all come together. And then... Oh, and the
1: rabbi can write, right, and do numbers. No, no,
0: right, right. Yeah, no. This is the invention of writing. Like, or, you know, like at least one of the earliest uses of writing was this. We're gonna just track these accounts, and like, it's it's a little voodoo. I mean, if you're like an if you're like an illiterate farmer, which basically all the farmers were, and you show up to this place, and this guy's dressed up in these robes, and he's like, look, and he's just putting things on a thing and like like putting little marks on a clay tablet it's, or whatever it's Very
1: esoteric
0: <laughs> right you're just like what the fuck's going on here but like somehow there's some if it's sort of contained some kind of ritualistic or feast atmosphere or like a cultural celebration i mean religion kind of comes into play here as well which basically says like look this is validated for all of us or we're gonna at least say that it's validated and we're all gonna kind of abide we're all gonna mutually agree all right, we're going to abide by these rules. And essentially the priestly class is doing something like market making at the beginning. Like it's almost like the proto state or whatever you want to call this. And the making of economic markets go together. It's partly what they're there for in a way like to, Mm -hmm. and and they're kind of assuming or taking on this social function, which truth is, I think there's like a, a historical distaste for it. Like, I think of sort of like, you know, the, you know, uh medieval Europeans distaste for Jews doing money exchange or libertarians distaste for the fucking, you know, state doing this kind of or central banks doing this kind of thing. Or, uh you know, like there's like there's sort of this weird thing like is, you know, it's like it's concrete. If I'm a blacksmith, you know what I do. Right. If I'm a farmer, you know what I'm doing. Right. Like. You see mm-hmm. it because there's a physical the good product of it. Right. Look
1: at this great piece of armor. Right. You know, this gauntlet that I've fashioned Free. from metal. Yeah. Here you go. I did and that. You, you, yeah, <laughs> I did that. Right. And then the farmer, he gives you a bag of corn. Right. Right. There's, there's something there that you you get out of the exchange. It's obvious. It's certainly not invisible and esoteric. Right. Yeah. With accounting whatever kind of accounting you like whether it's early early temple accounting or it's you know double entry accounting from florence or whatever Mm -hmm. you're getting it's sort of like there's some kind of intermediary here i gotta work through this person they're taking some off the top um if i'm borrowing money from it what the hell am i getting out of that except having to give back more money later. It's really hard. You get this prohibition on usury. Right. Throughout the Judeo-Christian world. And yet you get this simultaneous like toleration of, of the Jews around, for example, Italy in, in the Middle Ages, because Jews weren't Christians. And there in, in Christianity is a prohibition on usury, which is lending money. Mm-hmm. But among the Jews there wasn't. So it's like, well, we can kind of skirt this by tolerating the Jews. We'll keep them around. And yeah. And you know, we'll still suppress them, oppress them and, and all that jazz. But, uh, but this ordering function in society actually turns out to be kind of necessary and we're just going to let it go so that we don't have to dirty our hands and go to hell That's right. with usury. Yes, um, exactly. But then you got these, so suddenly all of a, you know, all of a sudden you've got this powerful intermediary that uses force to pop heads and keep them in line. That's the the Hobbesian rationale, right? Sure. Yeah. This overwhelming <laughs> Leviathan that that keeps order, yeah. And that's sort of the 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 Hobbesian rationale for everything under the sun, re- requiring right. the state. Otherwise,
0: we would just, you know, run around like wild animals, ripping each other's heads off or something.
1: Yeah. Because you know, after all, life is nasty, brutish, and short, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> then you got this other, um, and back then it sure as hell was. It's not in a lot of ways. That's a pretty strong argument, right? Yep. Um. Likewise, you have this this ordering function. That's kind of mysterious, but I know I need to borrow money for certain things and eh, I don't like it. There's something that leaves a bad taste in my mouth about it, but it's the only option I've got. So this sort of sticks around and thrives, but at least I'm not going to hell. Right. Right. Um, and, and so now you've got this idea of the middleman. Yep. And you, you've got these intermediaries who serve functions in society, but there's such an information asymmetry between the providers of those services and the recipients of those services yep. that you get tabuization around their function, exactly. And so, so you know, your modern advocates of cryptocurrency or anarchy or libertarianism or, or you know, sort of even leftish hostility to to usury to yep. money yep. lending yep. is all a kind of feature of first not understanding the function of. If I, I mean, the simple fact of opportunity costs. If I can't deploy this capital for something that uh, benefits me, my family, or society, um, then there, then that ought there ought to be some sort of price or cost associated that with that. Yeah, we call that interest. But that's really hard for people. That rationale, just that little species of knowledge right there, is not enough when you explain it to people. To dissolve the taboo. They think it's, oh, rich people just get richer because they deploy capital through loans or VC and they don't understand an investment and they don't understand loans and that's, and if they do, some of them still say it's evil. So that's an interesting phenomenon. So whether or not you think it's evil, I happen not to, I think financial institutions provide a very interesting set of services. But I also think if those can be made redundant through technological means and peer-to-peer exchange, yeah. Abso fucking lutely. Yeah. I don't care about keeping bankers in jobs. What do you <laughs> think?
0: I think I think it's totally. I mean, now we're kind of we're feeling into the motivation. And I think I think you said it, but maybe I'll just emphasize it here for the listeners. Like, it's this is not just about, you know. Something that might sort of seem like more like a right wing libertarianism, libertarianism critique of like the state. You could also see it on the left, like you said, yes, C- critique oh, of absolutely investment can. bankers. And st- it's like, what are those people doing over there? They're just Occupy moving money. Wall or- Street. Yeah, they're just moving money around and like skimming off the top by just trading money for other kinds of money, and that's also evil, right? Like they're so- creating
1: a zero-sum game and they're sucking the resources out of the poor and the middle it's a class. Pyramid and-
0: scheme, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so- this is this is a definitely a uh, a bipartisan hatred for financial institutions. Yes. Yeah. And their collusion with the state, which is on full display after two thousand eight.
0: Yes, totally. Which is where we got Occupy Wall Street from. Exactly. So so here's the thing. Like if we think about this coordination function, now now I'm going to get a little maybe computer science or information theory here, like, or maybe even like monetary economics, which is, it's interesting. Like we, whatever that was, that the temple culture was doing all the way up through what financial markets do today is something like a kind of, Coordination, a social coordination function, that's mediated through the exchange of information. Right. I mean, really fundamentally, you can talk about this sort of within a corporation, like we did on our uh, "Cutting Edge of Organizations" episode, and now we're talking about more broadly in the marketplace at large. Right. But what what are we doing here? We're we're trying to like find some way of essentially communicating openly about how to coordinate the allocation of energy, time, right? Like it's it's all raw materials, right? And, and we have this ideal of the pricing mechanism. We've we invented this thing called money, right? And we have a thing called prices. And then we have this rationale that sort of surrounds it that says, look, we have this thingy that is like, um, what are the three things that money is supposed to do? It's supposed to be a medium of exchange and a unit of account and store value. And
1: a unit of account. And yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. These things. This is what is what it's supposed to do for society. We, we, and like, it's a little bit like a magical thing. Right. And, but it's, it's so magical just to really drive the point home here. Like empires rise and empires fall, man. Like, Rome came and Rome went, but, like, there was money before Rome, there was money during Rome, and there's still money after Rome. That, as a social technology, transcends the rise and fall of civilizations, and Mm -hmm. we still have it. And I think what's interesting right now in the crypto economics world is we're talking about, like, well, can we – I mean, some people are trying to straightforwardly say we're just going to replace what money what, what fiat currency money, this kind of decree currency by the state does with this other thing where we say our giant decentralized network of computers is like the intermediary or something like this. And it, yeah. it does what money does, medium exchange, you don't account store of value. But then there's people who kind of go like, you know, Bitcoin makes a shitty medium of exchange because its price is fluctuating so much. Like its value is fluctuating so much. So like, but maybe we can actually tease apart right because fundamentally you know there there are people who sort of wax mystical about money and i think uh gold buggery people or bitcoin maximalist people tend to be this way sometimes we're sort of like it's it's, it's the central thing. bankers yeah yeah central bankers it's the thing that is the the reference point that is like around which all this other shit rotates and it's like right it has some almost like a sacred whatever something to it And, you know, I think as soon as we got off the gold standard and some of these economic ideas of the subjective theory of value and, you know, the value of any currency is just floating against any other currency. There actually is no ground value now in markets. It's just the value of everything is just floating against the value of all the other things, which is Mm -hmm. a little bit weird, but like it's Mm -hmm. it's magical. But it's I think it's actually more realistic. Right. It really is an aggregate output of a social calculation which is the aggregate output of the coordination of all of our economic activities. So in a way, cryptocurrency is not just replace money, but if we get really clever with it, can we actually create maybe novel ways of coordinating information
1: across populations? Like, I think that's also yes. interesting. Well, so there's so much good stuff in what you just said. I love it. Let me see if I can pick, pick out a few pieces. Cool. The first one is it's like, questioning the idea of a monolithic system of money, right? Okay. Second, questioning the idea that that monolithic system of money needs to be determined by a central authority Mm -hmm. and that its properties are determined by a central authority. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: When you question the idea of a monolithic system of money, a money monopoly, you start to really get to the idea. And, And look, even the Bitcoin maximalists or the so-and-so maximalists fall victim to fall prey to this. It's like, mm-hmm. don't tell me what properties I want in my money. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cause it, the idea is maybe I need one property at one point. I'll use my Bitcoin, for example, to store value safely, because I know they put more emphasis on security, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, you know, small blocks, so it won't be taken over. Um, you know, there are all of these features, technical features we can get into if you like, but suffice it to say at the end of the day, what the technical people who are working on Bitcoin BTC really emphasize is the security. Right. Okay. And that's why you have proof of work. That's why you have, you know, solve cryptographic problems in order to, um, you know, get through a block, uh, you know, and make sure that all of these cryptographic puzzles are being solved with some degree of simultaneity so that you know that all of the machines around the world are working in synchrony so that no person can do double spending and rip the system off i mean there's yep. all kinds of really weird technical shit behind bitcoin yep and in some and sometimes we want to emphasize other properties so sometimes i want scalability i want massive throughput if i can achieve both security and throughput. Which is to say many, many different transactions per second, um, like other cryptocurrencies are promising. Yeah. Then maybe Bitcoin is not the be all end-all of everything. Maybe right. the second layer solutions are a kludge, second layer solutions being, you know, on top of the early Bitcoin standard. There are all these second layer things that are trying to make it faster, yeah. but yeah. run afoul of first layer limitations, right? Um There are concerns about that for the longevity of Bitcoin. But if Bitcoin is only a store of value, like a digital gold, then Bitcoin can stick around and still serve that function to be a personal Fort Knox for you. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then other cryptocurrencies can come along and say, Hey, but our throughput is fast. Like the transaction is instantaneous and there's still a high degree of certainty about its security. So let me have, let me have this other property. When you start to consider the array, the dizzying array of properties in this evolutionary ecosystem, it disabuses us of this, not only this idea of a monopoly that has to have one set, one set of properties at all and give and opens the door to the idea that maybe we actually need different properties for different contexts and different tokens supply those different properties. And now I'm not dealing in a world of dollars. I'm trading my cardano my ethereum my apple stock that's been tokenized my whatever just to buy a fucking cup of coffee how cool is that
0: yeah i think it's it's pretty cool i mean it it runs the issue of being sort of too complex for the everyday person to deal with and i think this is the simplifying aspect of a single currency a fiat in a geographical area backed by a state or maybe even there's something simplifying for global markets to have something like the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, and the British pound prior to that. Um, but I do want to say that, like this idea of like you know, oh look at all this novel shit you could do with crypto. There actually are antecedents for this in the pre-crypto world. So one of my favorite examples historically was um it was like the miracle of Virgil, Virgil in Austria. In the 1930s, would you hear about this? This <laughs> is like, this is like right in the global depression, right? Like it was yeah. the Great Depression, and um, they basically created a local currency, which was a demerage currency. And demerage, for our listeners, is basically inverse interest. So if you hold on to the money, it loses value. So you want to spend it faster. So you know, there's they actually did it with these little stickers that would go on this bill, like and like at a certain date. You so it to increases add a the
1: velocity of the of the currency.
0: That's that's correct. So it's a it's a feature,
1: ah.
0: and and essentially this the miracle of Virgil is this town, essentially protected itself from the global depression by inventing its own local currency that everyone like was incentivized due to the design of the currency with this demurrage or negative interest on it. To spend, so the money kept circulating, so people could keep exchanging goods and services, um, and stay working rather than unemployed. Which is fascinating, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say like, well, you know, the the thing you're trying to point to is like we don't want to like, then you know, sacralize this one version. Everything should be demerit currency, right? But it is a, a feature, right? It's like a, this is it. It's doing. It's doing something about money, like a medium of exchange, really well, but it's not doing store of value very well at all, right? You don't want to hold on to it at all. You want to keep sending it around as fast as you can. And these, you know, to, to this broaden This is very the... Keynesian. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I well, this is, what what you get here is very interesting, like because the, the question of decoupling these features of money, like I think even Keynes- Wanted to create some kind of like giant mutual. So, if there's another pathway here, which if, you know, we can talk about the, the nerds and the computer scientists and the people who want to create digital currency, but there's another one which is, uh, you know, communities, uh, communities, community currencies, uh, that sort community of community currencies, let's systems like local exchange trading systems or time banks or mutual time credit, yeah, yeah, mutual credit yeah. systems, yeah, yeah, these things existed for a very long time. We we're sort of like, oh, we all know, like. We, the, the value is sort of almost being generated by, you know, a, like a, hey, we're, you know, I, I did this for you and you did that for me. And so we kind of like actually like enter that into the system and we have like a shared ledger. And, you know, prior to the emergence of crypto, there was, you know, some of these hardworking co-op, you know, coder oh, people. Listen, were We're like trying I, to build these let systems for like communities to like do time banking exchange with each other.
1: Dude, uh, so you're in San Diego. Yeah. Okay. And I'm in Austin. And I think north of San Diego is like, uh, uh, I forgot the name of it. It's a little hippie town uh, near uh-huh. you. Rainbow? Um, I don't know. Anyway, okay. sounds sounds plausible. Yeah. <laughs> um, And we have hippie towns around here. Um yeah. You know, we have what's called the consciousness community here. And you have, yeah. I'm sure, your yeah. species of it in, in California. And In Spades, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. So one of the things you know charles eisenstein came out with this book called sacred economics and it's got some interesting ideas in it mm-hmm. and And i don't want to i don't want to criticize this because there's a wider point here that that is um but it sort of fetishizes the pay it forward sort of gift economy time banking mutual mm-hmm. credit this kind of stuff which is great for its for certain contexts some of these kind of systems that people try to devise really run afoul of like how price is determined intersubjectively. So run afoul of the price system, run afoul of intersubjective agreement about price and how that, you know, mm-hmm. a willingness for multiple market actors to behave in a certain way relative to the others in, in patterns of exchange. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to throw that baby out with the bathwatering in architecting, trying to architect some idealized, whatever you want to call it, conscious monetary system. Right. But I do want to give a shout out to those guys in the sense like, yes, do it locally, do it, you know, charitably experiment with these things. And I could be completely wrong in my Mangarian biases about the nature of money and about the nature of society. And if you're right or if at least you're right within your tiny enclave, let a thousand blooms.
0: Yes. Let a thousand
1: flowers bloom. Let A thousand cryptocurrencies be born.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is where I get kind of excited because, you know, you and I are really into this idea of like, well, just let's see what happens when we run all these experiments in parallel. And that's that's how we kind of get, I mean, that, that's the nature of evolution, right? The nature of evolution is lots of competing experiments and lots of v- variation and they just collide with each other. And like they're proven out by essentially some real ground level of like, well, h- how much, you know, how much energy efficiency essentially, you know, can it do like to create organization out of out of its usage of energy and like that's the basis of all life okay cool so let's do that i think this i mean i think you're right like i think it's a good thing that Keynes didn't get his way when he tried to he proposed one of these gigantic mutual credit systems like that could be like a whole union for the like a whole nation that never happened yeah
1: there was a lot of things that Keynes proposed that never got Never got built. Although interestingly, um, what are they called? There's an Israeli-based, Israel-based um, Keynesian sort of bankor token that does some interesting stuff based on Keynes and this other French economist. Mm-hmm. In any case, I, I encourage listeners to look look into it. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. But uh, um, at the end of the day, we did get a lot out of Keynes for the world order that we're living in today. So it's okay. not only that we have this massive central bank in the United States where you and I are talking from called the, called the Federal Reserve Bank. Yep. It is that the Federal Reserve Bank is in a sense the de facto central bank for the world. Right. Despite the protestations of the World Bank and the IMF and all this stuff, right? Because the, the world reserve currency is the U.S. dollar. That came straight out of Brett, Bretton Woods. And Keynes was, of course, the foremost economist at Bretton Woods. They didn't invite yep. Hayek. Hermesis to Bretton Woods, and although that, you know, that would have been, been interesting. That would have been interesting. <laughs> um, instead, they had Keynes and they created the the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. And mm-hmm. then in uh, 19, I want to say 48, 49 was the Bretton Woods uh, Agreement. Anyway, it was right after the war. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to establish a kind of capitalish not capitalist but capitalish world order mm-hmm. that would be that would stand in juxtaposition to communism on the one hand because Keynes was not a communist he right. had he had some socialist sympathies and yeah. of course he was he is the poster child for economic interventionism on the part of central powers yes but – and he, of course, likes the, uh, the idea of architecting systems of financial systems as, as if there were some kind of machine that can be designed. Mm-hmm. Um, what we got out of Bretton Woods persists to this day, and we have a world based on – we are lucky as hell. Uh, Peter Zehan calls it the, an exorbitant privilege to have the dollar as the world reserve currency because it allows us to spend – allows our government to spend into oblivion and add zeroes to things give away free money but relative to other countries who are doing the same it manages to be the only game in town the dollar still right, the strongest right. among all the currencies yep except for 2009 something happened
0: yep I man there's a there's a branch here where like I, there's this kind of like global issue around the design of giant machines and like the implications of currency and whether or not they do need to be tied to some kind of militaristic imperial power. Mm -hmm. But then I think there's another part where we kind of branched to hear about the, the, the lets and the local stuff. I want to go back to the local thing real quick and then maybe back to the global thing. Is that cool? Right on, right on. So what I, what I think is interesting in terms of these antecedent alternative currencies, and this is where I want to just say like I I I I have an intuition that we're sort of returning maybe to a previous world where there was more local like banks administering their own bank notes or something like this but not exactly the way it used to be but we, we, like if frequent flyer miles right or you're you're earning points with your credit card or whatever you want to call it, like loyalty dollars or you buy a gift card right you you turn an Amazon gift card's weird. You're turning dollars into into dollars that can only be spent on Amazon or something like this. But like, yeah, NFTs, hey, these, yeah, old school NFTs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're creating essentially a construct, and this is where I think it's it's this is sort of like fundamental thinking about the nature of the um, currency and its different functions socially, and instead of thinking about this thing, like a like a dollar, a reserve currency that does these three things, medium of exchange, unit of account, store of value, we can break it apart. And we already have that. It's not like, oh my God, this is just brand new to the crypto world. This has existed for a really long time, right? Like you can think of coupons, or you could even think of these more exotic financial instruments, like these weird derivatives that are traded by financial institutions and if you if you spend enough time like looking at these fucking weird things collateralized debt obligations and all these all that shit that got the financial markets into trouble in 2008 what, what the hell a mutual funds and, and like i mean all these different weird things like, what are they they're just some giant kind of concatenation of social contracts that's what they are right yeah. that, that says yeah. like <laughs> the value of a thing that is a, is tied to the value of another thing, and what it will be worth in the future, or like it, or a, or like a like a like a T bill, which is sort of like an inverse debt where we're loaning money to the state. I mean, all of these different things are already these interesting little nexus of social agreement that are communicating information at a
1: large scale amongst many actors within a society. There's only one problem with that. That, let's call it legacy ecosystem. Okay, is that the intercession of the central bank? Okay, it's 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 absolutely true that this functions as an as a this certain kind of financial ecosystem with many different creatures in it. If you like, yep, yep. Okay, the current system, the legacy the system, already system already has this. But yeah. there is n- when your system is denominated in dollars, mm-hmm. there is nothing that the central bank doesn't touch through its activity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So going back to this idea of centralization and the politicization of money, which happens all the time because government wants to do what governments do. State's gonna state, state's gonna spend, state's gonna (laughs) debt spend. It has every incentive. The incentives are all built around debt spending. Yeah. So if, if anything you're talking about, whether it's, uh, miles or whatever are denominated in dollars. Now you might have airline miles that are immune to that. I don't know. Um, I'd have to, you know, ask the economist or sm- someone smarter than I mean, me. Like they're you.
0: still worth, they're still <laughs> translated through dollars, right? Your airline yeah, frequent. I think I mean, so.
1: Yeah. Um, if they never cross that, I, I I don't know, but in any case, um, those are also sub- subject to change by the corporations that control them you can put time limits on them you can you can Mm -hmm. they have their own ability to debase those currencies right through through the fine print of your little agreements yep Yep. um so that central banking function is always tethered to power coercive power and i and i know that sounds like some kind of uh sort of crypto anarchist craziness but it's not it is just acknowledging the raw coercive power, at the center yep. of which, uh, the center of that empire is, is, also going to be is going to be two primary things: a central bank, and a standing army that yep. can kick every other standing army's ass. It is yeah. no accident that the Federal Reserve, in the United States, um, is the most powerful empire on earth, and right. that is because those two things. And when the state does what it needs to do through debt spending. the the Federal Reserve has no choice but to reach into its bag of tricks and figure out ways to oblige that power. It cannot go against that power. So it has to debase the currency. It has Mm. to inflate. Mm. So that is why we're seeing today in 2021, the price of housing go through the roof, the price of building materials, the price of food, the price of probably cryptocurrencies, even though those Mm -hmm. are – you know, a, an inflation hedge more than any other instrument, um, Mm -hmm. asset prices, you know, we have a really frothy, um, market right now for stocks and things. They're all denominated in dollars. So there's all these new dollars in the ecosystem now, right. Trying to find a place to go to be safe. You can't find anywhere to go besides gold in the past, right? Gold was traditionally speaking the only thing that would provide an inflation hedge or and real it's really, estate or real well to some degree but we have yeah. it we have housing bubbles we you know sure. 2008 2009 it wasn't a very good idea to use housing as an inflation hedge from 2000 to 2008 right that was well, those that were instrumentalized.
0: Lives. those were intermediated by these exotic dead instruments you in right way. there's a
1: whole complicated stew of yeah. shit uh, that central banking and, and the treasury department and all these people that architected in you basically forcing the major financial institutions to take tarp money. I mean, there's this whole just Ely story of how that we narrowly escaped total and utter collapse. And we did get a great recession. Yeah.
0: Michael Lewis is, what is his book? That was a fun kind of romp through that whole thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, he's a fun writer and he focuses less on the problem of power and more on the power of problem of finance. Sure. But it's, it gives you half of the story and it's a good one. Well-told story. Um, so anyway, the point being when you have these two, this, this decision makers about what the, the properties of the financial system are, in a a single decision maker that has a standing army and they are de facto colluders. It is really, really hard to do anything but accept the economic conditions that result from the capricious behavior of state actors. All right. All right. Yeah. All right.
0: I think we're going to, I think maybe we, we have the fixings for a little bit of a debate now. Maybe I think this could be kind of fun. This is good. I love that you're laying it out in this way and there's there's two there's sort of two fronts here one is the kind of like whatever you want to call it this like i don't know is there some kind of like thing called mini economics we can we can use as a new label cuz it's like it's not quite micro and it's not quite macro it's like whatever these little collectives of like one of these time banks or mutual credit systems or amazon gift cards or airline miles whatever this kind of tier of like consent consent-based uh
1: economic systems
0: yeah yeah it's it, but it's like in it's like sort of at a meso level right between yeah. the macro and the micro and uh what i think is true and you can you can maybe try to poke holes in this is there's always going to be some kind of soft coercion right if 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 i stay in the system right and i'm just like swapping coupons with you, but like, we can only spend all our coupons at Amazon. It's just use that as a simple example. We can, we can trade coupons or something like that. Uh, there may be a price, a sort of a a penalty to get out of that system. Like as long as we're trading within it, here's, I'll I'll give you miles, you give me miles, whatever. It's sort of great. And we get almost like a, like, um, what do you call that? Like a, like a, like a benefit there's like maybe a carrot sort of benefit for like keeping our trades within the system. There may be even like something like damage, which actually encourages us to circulate it. There doesn't have to be, but like that is a trading zone with all the other participants in it. But then if I'm like, I want out, right. Then I have to find somebody who's sort of at the perimeter. I got to go to an exchange somewhere or, and, and like be like, Hey, buy me out of my, Whatever it is, right? If I, if I was like a, a co-owner of a co-op, I might have to go, essentially go to the, whatever, the online forum, which is the private, you know, forum for all the people who own the co-op and say, hey, I want to leave the co-op. Who wants to buy me out, right? And then you have to find buyers within the system who are willing to essentially put more of their dollars in and give them to you, right? And then they get back more shares of the co-op. Right. They're they're essentially like they're sort of expressing their belief in, no, man, I'm more I'm more into this co-op while you're kind of like, no, I'm more out. Right. But whatever this is, there's some. This is not the stick like a military, but there is some kind of coercion that's keeping people in the bubble of that zone of trade. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Well, another way of looking at it is it's a kind of gravity. Okay. Yeah. Like um, a network effect, a gravitational a ne- pull. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly yeah. where I was headed with that. So you have right. the, the dollar, which, you know, people are in the cryptocurrency uh, space called the ultimate shit coin, right? Because, <laughs> because of its, its shitty shitbag properties. Um, of course, the people who apologize for the dollar try to, you know, mistake MasterCard for the dollar. Say, look how fast the transaction speeds are. Not without MasterCard. So. Okay, go fuck yourself. Right. But anyway, right. um, um you're, my biases are showing a little bit, but I agree sure, with sure. them that the dollar is the ultimate shitcoin and um and yet the dollar is still has powerful gravitational effects because it it's network effects. And what do we mean by network effects? Um mm-hmm. you know, you you can we can use that terminology, we'll put it in the show notes. But it's really important to because t- there's a myriad ways in which if other people are doing things, there is a value in the network, okay? That's right. There's, yep. All right. There's a thing called Metcalfe's law. Metcalfe's mm-hmm. law applies sometimes. In other cases, it doesn't. But if Metcalfe's law is so profound, the value of the network um, is is the square of the number of nodes, for example, which shows a mm-hmm. kind of scaling law effect To to... The, mm-hmm. the value of the network. And it's just, you know, if even if you want to use it as a, a metaphor, it gives you right. the idea that there's more gravity around more people using yeah, something.
0: The more people use it, the more people want to use it.
1: Yeah. The more people use it, the more people want to use it, the more they're going to have already borne the costs of taking the money of the taxation system associated with it. So if you want to, you know, it's like you got to, it's not that easy to take cryptocurrency yet. And it's, it's also, A lot of people don't even know how to. It's still a rather esoteric kind of phenomenon. If you talk to the average person on the streets, it's like, well, I got dollars. They're fine. Yes, we got inflation, but whatever. You know, they're not living in Argentina and they're not living Mm -hmm. in fucking Venezuela. So they don't have the incentive yet to care, to take the the businesses don't have the incentive. How am I going to do this with my accounting? Like taking Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency and dollars and all this stuff. That sounds complicated. You know, so. Part of the creating network effects around the user ecosystem of cryptocurrency tokens is going to involve getting people to accept it as readily as they do dollars. And that's really, in some sense, at least for cryptocurrencies, the last mile that needs to be established Mm -hmm. for game over, at least in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Because in countries like Venezuela there are so many users as a proportion of the population just because they're in a living in hyperinflation and hyperinflation right. is basically you know taking a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy a cup of coffee it's terrible mm-hmm. it's absolutely mm-hmm. terrible um so it's funny that's the then, carrot, that's the carrot incentive the gravitational pull of the
0: network effect is the thing that just has people naturally want to do it the more people it's like it's like almost like fomo the more people are doing it the more I want to be a part of that But there's also these other penalty incentives like soft sticks, like there's a penalty to get out Mm -hmm. or hard sticks like states will come like throw you in jail if you don't pay your taxes. But like, right, there's some mm, other kind of whatever you're going to call it, perimeter social function that sort of like makes people keep trading within it. I mean, there's a sort of a question. Do we need those kinds of things? in these sorts of systems to do that? Or do we just get rid of these
1: stick incentives altogether? I mean, I think you, I, I would argue you want to get rid of all stick incentives so that the full benefits of new, new network effects and new properties and the, the emergence of new properties. Look, let look, let, let, let's think about, uh, Uh, we're computing, you know, you earlier, you were talking about, well, it's just not simple, you know, and I know, you know, you're playing a little bit of devil's advocate here and I, and I appreciate that. But Mm -hmm. one of the things you said earlier is like, people just don't understand, you know, it gets too complex. It gets too, you know, managing your private keys and all that shit gets to be complicated. They're going to have to do better than that. I'll I'll tell you that right now. There's going to have to be mechanisms for mom and pop to be able to use cryptocurrency safely without all this private key management and all this other, you know, weirdness Somebody's going to have to crack that too. That's another user user interface face thing that is that needs to happen um, to to for it to to have full adoption, simplicity and security combined. But in any case, the going back to this idea of it being compl- complicated to use that that mm-hmm. is true. Um, and the idea that there are different properties that you might want to learn about and might be able to use is also a kind of a weird thing to imagine when it comes to money, because we have this framing that has been with us for our entire lives. There is only one currency and it is the, uh, the, the dollar, the dollar, <laughs> or, or if you're in Germany, you know, it, it was the, Deutsch the mark, mark. And, and now yeah. it's the, the, the euro, but you know, the dollar or the euro, whatever sort of monolithic system you're living in with its associated monolithic properties, um, would be like going back in time and, and buying a new Mac and using, what was that? Uh, what was that like proto Excel thing you were telling me about? Um, Or maybe it was someone else, but I remember. VisiCalc? VisiCalc, yeah. Yeah. So you would go buy a Mac to get VisiCalc. And that's what people thought you you would buy a personal computer for, was to get that one application. Yeah. And likewise, so now we're living in an age of, you know, fast forward 40 years. And we're living in an age of, you know, smartphone technology. We don't have two apps. We have countless apps. And that's freaking right. complicated. We should be scared of that. Eh, maybe. How about people are adapting nicely and they will with time. Yeah. So I believe that you can achieve certain level of stasis, a certain level yeah. of adoption. Um, and in a complex in a complex environment, if you are prepared for a little bit of change at a rate that people can handle and they can see the benefits of immediately Mm -hmm. right that Mm -hmm. that allows us a a state of affairs that means the adoption of cryptocurrencies can be normalized it has to a very great degree already in the last five years for example and Mm -hmm. i'm a goober you know this about me michael porcelli that as max borders is pretty good in theory when it comes to technology, you have to spend five minutes before we get on every time holding my <laughs> hand through the through the through the goddamn mic hooks up hookups and all of the different things I need to mute and this and that in order to make it work. Yeah. Um, people like me who um, are f- having a great time in the abstraction land need need help with user interface on some of this stuff. Um, yep. But I don't want to uh, put. Uh, extend this paragraph out too long to put a period at the end of it, I would say this is the nature of the evolving ecosystem. And there are going to be powerful forces that emerge in the ecosystem that replace the need for the stickification. Programmable incentives make redundant the need for sticks. So, right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Maybe we need to kind of parse out what we mean by stick exactly. But yes, I, I think I get what you're saying. If if we think of the hard stick as the thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, but here, here, I think we kind of maybe enter in some more territory that's worth debating. So if, if there's some amount of barrier to entry, you you could say, um you know, the SEC's rules about being an institutional investor provide a barrier to entry to essentially like, you know, openly trade stocks, you know, at a certain tier of whatever, you know, like, or VCs qualify, you know, their investors at a certain level or higher and they don't take anybody who's lower than that. And there's reasons why. And the idea here is like, you're, you're, you're pre-qualified to like essentially be smart enough supposedly to not get taken advantage of by hucksters or, you know, pyramid scheme people like Bernie Madoff, although he's a great exception because he fucking really deceived a whole lot of people. But, uh, the, the idea here is some amount of, of like barrier to entry or even penalty to leaving, which can be built in. Like if, if we're talking about the wonderful world of like, let's transfer what, some, one of these kind of like uh <laughs> progressive style, you know, mezzo economic sort of co-op mutual thingies like, oh, cool. There's several thousand of us. It's not billions of us or even millions of us. But like, there's a thing that says like, yeah, yeah, There's there's a rule that says, hey, once you once you bought in, you can't just liquidate. This is not like a, a like a publicly traded stock, you know, in our co-op. You actually there's a rule that says you have
1: to sell it to one of us who's already in it or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh yeah, I mean, this right? is Coinbase. This is yeah. not even hippie stuff. Like this is this is what Coinbase does um, to protect its ass and protect right. assets. It, yeah. it, it does both. The, and I actually don't like that. I understand why they do it, though. There's a lot of reasons why they do it. They don't let you take out more than like 2000 bucks a day. If I think if you get on Coinbase Pro, you can move a lot more money and you have all of these other barriers. You
0: can't liquidate more than 2000 or you can't put in more than $2,000? Or, or at, at
1: certain tiers. At certain tiers, yes. you can't liquidate mm-hmm. more than $2,000 a right. day. Um right. they don't and they don't
0: want to run on the coinbase, right? They don't, don't want to run, run on, on the, the coinbase. That's right. <laughs> right.
1: Um especially if the regulators come along and say we're 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 if if you ban, you know, they ban it or or do something like make anybody who owns crypto have a banking license. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that the government can come along and try to destroy this. They'll never yes. fully destroy it. But they can m- take a massive shit in both the price and the utility of it for a while um and i'm yep. waiting for that day like i'm yep. i'm i'm really waiting for that day to come i'm I'm scared to death of it because not only do you know because i'm a, a i have a a certain level of human greed um but i also think that i'm scared of it because some of the promise of these technologies are going to be muted for could be a decade if the regulators sure. come in. Sure.
0: Well, let's. Th- this is one of these great things where we can, you know, talk about industries that like try to do something like regulatory capture to get the state to kind of partner with them to do the regulation. And then other industries that try to like avoid it. I think that, I think in the, in my sort of world of transformation, you know, psychotherapy versus coaching, like psychotherapy has sort of like glommed onto the state and mm-hmm. then coaching has tried to kind of. Self-regulate right. with its own institutions internal to its own marketplace.
1: Well, think about the SEC rules that you started off with. It's like yeah. you have to be an institutional investor. You have to prove that you have certain net worth, that you have enough money to lose if you lose your ass, that you're going to be okay, and you don't. And if right. you've got this much money, we assume you're not going to do anything stupid. But what that essentially does is says only rich people get to get richer. Exactly, and it's one of the effects of it for sure. And, but the, the, and the, the and the institutional investors love that regulation because they cartelize.
0: Yes, you're looking at the corrupt. And I'm going to fight you a little bit on this You're looking at the corrupt side of it, but the good side of it is,
1: or let me just—I'm just showing the process of regulatory capture.
0: That's true. That's yeah. I'm not going to argue with that aspect of it. Yeah, that's how regulatory capture works, and yes, it becomes a it becomes a protection for the people who already have the power to have more power and that whole thing. And you know, when Facebook says, "Hey, federal government, come regulate us," they're doing a similar sort of thing. Yep. But here's the thing the The positive reason for wanting some kind of regulatory function, and let's and let's just separate it from the state, just so we, is mm-hmm. to protect, is to actually protect people from getting exploited. If we sort of like remove more and more barriers to entry, or like friction, or the user interface is super easy, or whatever, you can put as much as or little as you want to in it, blah blah blah. Or we or we don't have some kind of like certain penalties to exit. Like, you know, like, Hey, you got to, you got to sell your shares back into the co-op population to exit. Otherwise you're stuck with them. Whatever the rule is, you could, you could, like we said, with these smart contracts, you could build whatever fucking rule you want into them. Like, you have to, you have to meet the conditions of the rule for the smart contract to execute. Okay, cool. Like, but some of those things could be a decentralized regulatory function that is there to protect Right? Like I don't Mm -hmm. I don't have to have a middleman with a state and with the guns and the you know the the brutes to come around. I could just have a thing that says like you click here and you buy into our, you know regulatory framework. Our mutual aid group, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, ten thousand people strong out here and whatever this is. It's it's sort of like a a cryptocurrency based insurance mutual. Let's just say it's something like this. This is actually a, a a template that I think is going to become more widely spread, something like collectivized insurance that is not centrally administered by a corporation, but is administered by a nexus of smart contracts amongst all the participants. I
1: think this is a great well, use I, case. I will tell you, Michael Porcelli, that yes. I literally spent a year and a half of my life trying to build this. That's right. Uh, through social evolution. Uh-huh. Um, I wrote I wrote an article um, back in, I want to say 2018, 2017. Sometime along that in there, I think it's 2017 called how we become the social safety net. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I introduced the notion of a DISC, distributed income support cooperative. Yep. Okay. And one of the things that we tried to do, I brought together a team of people to work on what would be the rule set involved. What is the consensus mechanism for awarding someone some sort of payout for their problem? That's right. How do you prove, how did they prove that they actually have a problem? They're not trying to game the system and so on. And it's a complicated thing. And it was way above my pay pay grade. Ended up, it also turns out to be illegal on about five different regulatory dimensions here in the United States. And I didn't, (laughs) I didn't have the money, the capital to take it offshore. So, but it's interesting because in the, in the United Kingdom, particularly like the Isle of Man and places like that, they're. They're, they're starting to experiment with some of the stuff. There's a group out of India that's building mm-hmm. some of these mutuals uh th- on through blockchain. They've got their own blockchains. It's really cool stuff. So, so you're absolutely right. This is already stuff starting to happen. I was actually, this is one right. of the things I wanted to work on most because yeah. I tend to like, I don't think of this in terms of only like how can I make money holding some token and be the first to own it. I think about it in terms right. of right. how can we help people in ways we've never been able to help them before, how can people help each other to disinterme- disintermediate the idea of the this coercive welfare state? Right. And and so I didn't mean to interrupt you, man. I'm glad you took us back there because you know I That's love good. that stuff. And, I, I, and I'll and encourage, I'll put uh, how we become the social safety net uh, distributed income so- support cooperatives in the show notes. Right, I mean, what's so cool about
0: these kinds of things Is that we can essentially do something like if you think about this, the welfare function of the state, it really is just like the state stepped in and did took over what mutual societies were previously doing and said, we're going to do the social safety net and like the, the best financial. Instrument to think about it is insurance, right? And if you kind of combine these things together, like a mutual plus insurance mm-hmm. and a cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. you get something that's like, oh, wow, this could really become the thing of the future. But the thing is, to pr- like those complexities that you said that were above your pay grade, there's got to be something that's going to prevent like marauding fucking pump and dump people just coming in and scooping up a bunch of it and liquidating it and like, like, right? Throwing up like there's actually has to be some amount of security especially because if you think about what are people what is one of the the features that we're talking about these different instruments have these different features right Mm -hmm. well one of the fucking features of insurance is it's there when you need it right like this at least that's in theory what it's supposed to be fucking doing right like so if if the the barriers to entry or the friction to get in and out of one of these kind of collectivized insurance crypto thingies mutuals. Is too loosey-goosey, too anonymized, or too whatever, right? Like, you undermine the ability of that thing to actually be a security safety net for the people who want to build it. So you need to actually build. Now, this is a little bit like, you know, soldiers in the form of, like, smart contract clauses or something like that to protect. Like, that function that is the army that's conjoined with your central currency, you know, is a, is a metaphor now, but it has got to be in there somewhere. Doesn't it? I mean, like the, these things don't work if they are just like, it's almost like there's the libertarian version of cryptocurrency, which is like, no, it's gotta be, it's gotta be open access and it's gotta be totally anonymous and anyone can enter and exit whatever they want Yeah. and trustless, whatever that means. You're trusting the chain, but you're like, whatever, you don't have to trust any person. Which is a certain set of features, which I think are really great for certain applications, just not this one,
1: right? Right. Like, yes. And this is one of the points that uh, Arthur Brock makes, the the guy who developed uh, Scepter, which is the underlying code base and et cetera for Holochain. Holochain, Holochain yeah. chain is, um, is a really interesting, different kind of technology from most things which are based on blockchains. But they have, yeah. some of the, and, and they have some of the – you can almost instantiate anything in Holochain that you can in any other blockchain and more yeah. because of it the yeah. way it's designed. I'll, again, show yeah. notes. Don't want to get into the technical details of that. Don't even think I can. Uh, yeah. Suffice it to say, at the, at, the, at, the, at, at the macro level, this is a very promising technology that I don't think enough people fully appreciate yet. And the developer community is still relatively small. Yep. That being said – There is, there are, um, certain ways where you want what I term hypermediation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Instead of disintermediation with hypermediation, you want more middlemen. You want everyone to be a middleman. You want a checkers and checkers of checkers. Yeah. Right. Decentralized regulation. Decentralized -decentralized regulation. Self-regulation. Yeah, exactly. And there, there should be a decentralized consensus mechanism for the rules the policies that are established yes. in yes. the manner of holocracy or something like that. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, there is that, that decentralized stewardship of the policies that could, policies can also change, um, in time to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to deal with certain exogenous factors or even in, endogenous factors. And so not everything needs to be trustless. A lot of things, anything that can be made trustless ought to be made trustless, but sometimes you want to, To create a system in which your community is radically involved, where everybody's putting eyes on on the decision to be made, and that the consensus mechanism that arises from it um, gives everyone the incentive to take a look at the decision, and you can get cool. There's a there's all kinds of ways to blur this together. For example, with decision markets, Mm -hmm. okay. But there are also ways of doing uh, arriving at consensus and and incentivizing evaluation that makes sense at a very human level. We can't always think about taking out people, as you say, and that can, you know, that's the libertarian wet dream. And I understand that. And for many dimensions of society, we want to preserve that, but not all of them. Sometimes we want to go ultra-communitarian, where community is fashioned by individuals, free individuals, sure, but harnessing the wisdom of crowds. Yeah, dude. So this is, I, I like that you
0: brought in Holo. I mean, I know a few people on that project. And to the extent that I understand what they're doing, it is a little bit more of the extension of the ethos that we talked about with the 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 mutual credits and the, the community exchange idea, right? It's like we can, it's less about the an- anonymity. It's actually not about anonymity. It's about we all know when, when I do a thing, when, when I like, you know, babysit for you and you credit me for having babysit, you know, so you're, you, and you go out with your baby mom or something like that, like that value, if we're, if we're ledgering that value in this particular system, this mm-hmm. decentralized ledger system that is now our community exchange system, like I want that value to fucking stay in the community. And it's, it's a little bit like Venmo. It's like so-and-so paid so-and-so for the whatever, right? Like in a way, I mean, maybe not every exchange has to be like, oh, broadcast like a social media thing. But if we wanted to, we could go look at it. And it sticks with the
1: Yeah. So you want to shield it from the token arbitrageurs and the volatility and all that stuff. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it'd be weird. And it it almost doesn't make any sense. So um, you started going to governance. And I'm going to try to bring that in here, too, which is like, you know, if you have these kinds of uh, features of your cryptocurrency like bitcoin does right like a lot of anonymity pseudonymity is really what it is but mm-hmm. like you know and open access where anyone can just join right anybody can mine and you're sort of just presuming that there's going to be like cheaters but you kind of create the consensus mechanism to expunge the cheaters it's a it's brilliant this is satoshi's brilliance you can create a giant scalable network open access network in this way it's amazing however what you're stuck with is if you want to fucking make a different thing, the only thing you're left with is, is forking, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the, the, the unless governance.
1: you're Tezos, <laughs> unless you're Tezos, which the, they figured out how to do it internally. But go ahead,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I'm going with this, right? Like, yeah. as soon as you say, I want the value that's being ledgered or the it, tracked on this network to remain in the participants of this network, then you you kind of don't, you don't get to fork anymore. It's sort of, it's sort of like, like, now my babysitting for you is worth like two versions of babysitting for me, one in this network and one in that. It just becomes, it sort of doesn't make any sense if you start, right? You want it to stay in, but as soon as you, if you create a strong enough perimeter that sort of is like, you know, um, it's not just the gravitational pull of the network effect, but it's one of these things that sort of like, I, I call it a soft stick, whatever you want to call it. Like penalties for leaving or like making sure everyone stays, or you get the, you need a security feature, like one of your disk things, right? You, you don't want to just, <laughs> it would be weird if people could fork one of your disks. It wouldn't make any sense, right? You're just like, what are you doing? It's almost like another version of inflation. You're just like multiplying out. And in, now I have two insurance policies inside two different networks. It's just weird,
1: right? Yeah. Well, and, and again, so this is, this is the thing about, Imagine a whole set of properties. We can do yeah. a laundry list of them a mile long, yeah. right? So a yeah. system has properties, something, and, and each of those, and we'll make it really simple for it. So there's no shades. Each of these properties is either on or off binary, sure. flick a switch, right? Uh-huh. Um, and what and we go down and we switch one way or the other, right? Uh-huh. Has the property, doesn't have the property, uh, uh, on, on down. Th- for a hundred different properties. If yep. one of those is forkable and one of them isn't, let's see what happens. It could be exactly. that the network network effects uh, keep it from forking. It could be that you actually, wow, we really do need this to fork. Um, yep. and, and so sometimes in the complex systems, the ch- uh, ch- slight changes in initial c- conditions can make for unforeseeable macro effects. The the butterfly in brazil creates a tornado in texas right so we know mm-hmm. that so establishing the initial conditions and thinking you're going to be able always to anticipate what the complex system is going to do is a fool's errand but you got to try right you right. still got to try um and that's why trying that experimental aspect of s- properties of money properties of systems properties of mutual aid networks whatever you're talking about we need the array we yeah. need to be people to get used to evaluating the array of properties, the limitations, because they're always going to be constraints in any system and they're always going to be benefits in any, in any system. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so in thinking along these lines, yes, it's more complicated. Yes. It takes more time, but the overall effect will be, well, let me just ask you what you think the overall effect to be. I think we should spend the last little bit of time here talking about the real seismic implications for this in each of our minds. I want to know what yours are.
0: Oh man. Okay. So we're going in an interesting direction here. Um, I think I need a, a little stepping stone before I get there, kind of to bridge something we were just talking about, which is like, yeah, these binary features. I think it, that was great. Um, I do think once you start tying something on a, one of these systems, to a real thing, it's kind of funny, like, like imagine real property, like real assets, mm-hmm. like real estate or, you know, this mug, right? right? Like not another mug. This mug belongs to the network or whatever it belongs to. Uh, At a certain, once you start tying the thing that's being ledgered directly to things that are not infinitely copyable, right? Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are, these are rivalrous goods if you want to think of them in that way. Yes. Right. Then you
1: you got to not in the Schmachtenberger n- sense, but in
0: the economic sense. Yeah. Yeah. But th- then what you need to do is to be able to fork. You, you, forking doesn't make sense. Like in in a way, you, you, these features kind of correlate. Like if the if the if the ledger is representing real assets is, and not just the value of a token, right? Or if you if you go really weird, NFTs, non fungible tokens, are ways of actually making non-forkable tokens right like and that's the thing you want to point to as an asset then then the network itself can't fork in any any meaningful way which means you need to put the governance of the protocol of that blockchain or that distributed ledger onto itself there needs to be some decision making or consensus mechanism or a code chain a code change mechanism that is governed by the participants within that network that basically say, yep, we're going to revise the code base, or we're not going to revise the code, or we're going to accept this change from that developer, but not this change from that developer, which starts to recreate what looks something that looks like legislation or something like that, which is sort of weird, but like, it, I think you, it's unavoidable. Like as soon as you start tying the tokens to real assets that are rivalrous or non fungible, right? Like then the then you you like you you have to put the governance of the protocol onto the chain somewhere. Otherwise you recreate a shadow power somewhere where like some collusion of majority plus one nodes in the network can Mm -hmm. go unilaterally change the code however they want to. Like you recreate a cartel, an off chain Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Cartel that can modify your chain and you don't get transparent governance anymore.
1: Yeah. Plutocracy is another problem. Oligarchy is another problem. Um you know, there is a there is a tendency or draw for the smartest people to try to figure out how to game any system. There always will be. Always will be, right? Yeah. So the white hats who develop these systems are trying to figure out how to stop the black hats at all times. Yes. And yep. Critics of these systems are gonna say, why in the world would you want to evolve, to socially evolve towards something like that that has so much uncertainty, so much room for yeah. vectors of attack by yeah. black hats and gray hats. Yeah. And the answer is, what the you hell do you think that government power is? Right? Right. I mean, God yeah. forbid we enable the executive to have these levers of power, what if a Donald Trump got elected? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, well, I'm, I'm re- I'm ready to go for what I think the promise of this stuff is, um, in grounded in and ready to go for it. I see where we're running out of time, but I don't want to, I don't want to hold you up on this last point. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I mean, there is a, mm, there's a grounded in realism issue that I have here that I, I think it behooves me to kind of say, because this is another piece of the stepping stone. I think we we can go whole hog after this point. Like this, the critic would basically make that argument, right? Look, I don't really care if you can fucking cryptographically, whatever, whatever, and smart contract protect your thingy. doesn't really matter. Though all that code is running on machines, computer machines, and those computer machines have physical locations, and those physical locations are somewhere on the surface of the earth. You know, until we start putting them in satellites or whatever. And guess what? You can just send army dudes over there to take them, right? Like it, at some level. And I think this is the way, you know, when we talk about this kind of creeping way that, you know, the SEC or whoever it is, is trying to like indirectly regulate these crypto marketplaces. You might say, oh, get away from my crypto and be like, this can, we can just self-regulate the kind of like the cypherpunk manifesto people. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's some validity to that, which sort of says like if someone can go seize the machines with guns, then you know the there's a there's always a credible threat that that can happen, right I mean, what I'm saying is like this this grounds out in physical world reality. Cyber reality is not just totally decoupled. From physical world reality, Mm -hmm. right? There's electricity and land and physics and matter and energy flowing through all of these processors on these giant decentralized networks. And theoretically, they can be seized, right? Of course. So don't you need to attach it to an army or something like that? A physical security force, does that not need to be part of this equation Uh, somewhere?
1: Uh, No, I, I, I think, I mean, I think it's a good question, but I think it's the, I think it's the Hobbesian trap. Okay. And it's a trap of thinking that it's, it's, it's like, we always have to have a final dispute resolution system. We always have to have some, some conception with the appropriate, with the appropriate checks and the application of raw military or police power with bureaucracy staffed by angels, right? We are going to be able to have this state of affairs where there's a, an ultimate kind daddy Ar- arbiter that'll come yeah. kick everybody's ass if something goes wrong. Okay. and and I think I think it's it's just as naive to think that we're gonna have a, a, Hob, a, a an angelic Hobbesian power as we're going to have, as we're going to have, um, architect systems that complete that are completely secure and nobody ever gets violated or, or, um, exploited. It's like, right.
0: well, it's it, never going to happen. We
1: always have to, we always have to ha- ask as compared to, it what? already isn't
0: true. Right. Yeah.
1: The difference between the two models is that is that the, in the, in the one case, the, the very loose feedback loop, this loose nebulous feedback loop of democracy, quote unquote quote, democracy, which isn't even even pure. It's, it's, you know, it's executed and instantiated by quote unquote representatives, all of whom have different incentives, incentives that are different from what they were elected for. This is a terrible feedback loop for change, but with systems that are constantly evolving in real time, democracies don't evolve in real time, they devolve in real time. And so at at least knowing we're going to have problems with all of these nascent crypto token ecosystems and the systems that we participate in, we know that they're going to be constantly Someone with an incentive to fix it, make it better, to try something new and positive incentive. Yes. Yeah. And, and and that process of much tighter feedback loops. Um, I I, yeah. I would put my money on that any old day. Here, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you.
0: I I do wanna before we go, I maybe I just gotta like plan a stake here for a future conversation and simply to say, like, whatever this thing that you and I are dreaming up here about like the Evolution of social technology into the future, where cryptocurrency and smart contracts and distributed ledger tech form one huge pillar of it, mm-hmm. I think is awesome, and I and I believe that it's possible. And I don't, I think we have to reckon with essentially the red meme stage, like we've said mm-hmm. in our psychosocial development episode. Yeah, the red meme doesn't get it doesn't get disappeared. It's just simply down the stack from where we are, so to speak, the sociocultural evolutionary stack, and it needs to be d- dealt with. And so like any kind of like anarchist solution or crypto anarchist solution comes back to like something like uh, how energy is allocated. Like if, if a central state power can fucking shut the power off, you're fucked. So you need to be able to like get your own energy. This is like a physics level thing. And then another physics level thing, which is maybe more like human bodies or something is you got to deal with security, physical security has to be dealt with. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not using this as an argument for a Leviathan or an argument for like one final arbiter, but I am saying the, the seizure or destruction of computer processors that are running these networks has to be dealt with somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the network somewhere. And we can maybe debate a little bit more on that in at another episode. But to me, the physical level security of these networks cannot just sort of be like left out of the equation. No, no, no. I mean, there's
1: always, you know, uh, some sort of attack vector or security hole in every system. Someone will try to find it and exploit it, especially the most powerful or people with the most to lose in the old order. I have no doubt about that in my mind. In fact, I'm scared to death of the war that is coming between the centralists and the decentralists. That war is coming, Um, particularly as the the old order becomes more still powerful, but starting to show its cracks. It's it's moribund. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to give you a great quote from James C. Scott. I love this guy. I mentioned him twice in this episode, but he says, and this is my this is a an answer, uh, something of an answer to the question of there's always going to be meat space power out there trying to take advantage of, of people. Right. Yes. Um, says one need not have an actual conspiracy to achieve the practical effects of a conspiracy. More regimes have been brought piecemeal to their knees by what was once called Irish democracy, the silent dogged resistance, withdrawal and truculence of millions of ordinary people than by revolutionary vanguards or rioting mobs (laughs) and i and now think about that quote and think about circa 19 or sorry 2012. all of a sudden there's this app that everybody's talking about in the bay area and then this app it's, 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 it's 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 all of this by the way is operating in a legal gray area but there's this app that allows you to hitch a ride, you know, and pay yeah. a driver to hitch a ride and it monitors you with GPS. It gets some of your information. So there's a certain level of transparency and safety and holy shit, they start using it and it just burns out of control. We know that today is Uber. Yep. Uber and Lyft are, um, it, you know, because in a lot of states, I think hitchhiking was illegal. It's not clear. Like this legal gray area allowed for the birth of something that is now established, pretty established law now. And, and, and Uber and Lyft t- a touch a, a lot of the world in, with people who have cell phones. And now there are decentralized versions coming out on the horizon that don't even need an Uber corporate to to function as the intermediary, right? It's just code. Mm-hmm. So. This this inversion of concentrated benefits, dispersed costs, which is the special interest state that Mansur Olson says, you know, that this process kills kills whole nations in time. Um, con- because if if there is a concentrated interest, someone has uh the a strong incentive to lobby, but everyone else in society doesn't even know what mohair is much less that there's a mohair subsidy and that they're paying for it. Right. So it's low cost. It's a low cost proposition to gain all the requisite knowledge to even go out in the streets and raise your fists. People don't understand half the shit they're having to pay for that is slowly dry dragging the society and the economy down. Right. But what's interesting about these internetworking technologies is that they rapidly create, new constituencies around the benefits of these technologies and uber ain't going yes. anywhere uber gets regulated in certain jurisdictions and this and that but at the end of the day uber stuck around uber's with us we're now we have legalized hitchhiking and it is safe so likewise i believe this inversion of concentrated benefits in in, in dispersed costs can be seen as Concentrated enforcement on the part of state actors, which are hierarchies, which tend to break down due to information problems and dispersed benefits on the constituencies that are networked, all of whom can engage in the dogged resistance, withdrawal and truculence of millions of ordinary people. (laughs) And that that is sort of why I think that all of this stuff is 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 amazingly promising. Once this gets mm-hmm. out, we're going to start – people are going to start to understand that governance can be, a, can be a thing that we opt into like a civil association or a club rather than something gets imposed upon us by virtue of territory, conquest, and accident of birth. We're going to yep. come to see that we really can have social contracts and that you'll have to sign them and abide by them that this is not some hypothetical or imaginary thing that it is a real social contract and that we will contract based on our pref- governance preferences, that that is not only possible, but it is desirable. And we will enter an age in when we u- in which we use, instead of sticks, we use carrots or we use sweet talk to beckon people, to come into our moral universe, our civic association, our system based on blockchain and that that will create a global order that is completely decentralized and yet relatively peaceful, at least I hope.
0: I love it, dude. I'm, I'm with you. I think this is, I'm glad we're ending on this note. Cause I think this is where I want to leave our listeners. Like, you know, I think it's good to wrestle with it and debate it and to try to like, you know, wrap your mind around what it is or the implications of it or, you know, what works about our current system and doesn't and where where we want it to improve and how we want it to improve. But like overall, I think this direction is, is correct. And my favorite way of advocating for it is to point out the, the things that we already have that are sort of like this, right? Like you can at any time you go to like, but what about the state? We need it to do this. Or what about the corporations? We need them to do that. And you're like, we can always point to these alternatives where, you know, you can, you, I mean, there was a time when we were, it was like, wait, you, you know, if you want a real encyclopedia, you got to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And now the Wikipedia is like, you know, hundred times bigger than the Encyclopedia Britannica ever was. And it's pretty much the standard encyclopedia people go to. Now it has faults, it's imperfect. But it's kind of incredible. And like that was a and still is a giant decentralized peer based authorship of a thing that has now become a global resource. And that's not under the control directly in any way by any state with people with guns or any monetary system that's attached to it. But it exists in a kind of network relationship to all these other systems that we have, like like the Internet or like, you know, Wikipedia software that's used to create and edit it, or this nonprofit organization called the Wikimedia thing. Now, I'm not trying to argue for Wikimedia in particular. I'm just saying this is an exemplar of the kind of thing that, when I envision what the world looks like in the system that we're talking about, is instead of all of these social functions, the social technologies essentially being aggregated... Under one authority, and you know, like whatever we, the United States Congress for us here in the U.S., and it's saying like we need to be the ones to administer this part and that part and this part and that part, and it's like no, w- why? Right? Like we already have examples of, you know, in in the financial institution, you have you have Vanguard, which itself is a is a is a mutual. It its funds that it manage own itself, or you have co-ops uh what are credit unions which are basically bank co-ops instead of commercial banks which are like banks that own themselves and don't want to exploit their customers uh with banks that are owned by their 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 customers and they don't want to exploit them you know with extra fees like so we have these kind of antecedent ideas you know or if anybody's been part of a community organization or if anybody's been part of a, a corporation that uses holocracy, people kind of get, oh, wait a minute, we can we can do governance for ourselves for what how we're gonna coordinate our efforts and what we're gonna do. So I'm really just kind of like trying to extend this intuition that, that there's plenty of workable examples, you know, in the in cryptocurrency and, you know, whatever you want to call these complementary money systems and Frequent flyer miles, we already have that, right? Okay, cool. Well, what what if we lived in a world where essentially we just disaggregated these corporate and state monstrosities, right? And essentially put them into a protocol stack of networks, where essentially, you know, it's like you're being a subscriber. You, know, I'm going to opt into this set, and then you then you could even have like curated lists or something like this oh we're gonna i'm gonna opt into this group of of services and it's like your social services are essentially like you know opt-in opt-out and sort of geographically independent
1: porch you know in in i hope in reading you know the social singularity as well as after collapse so one of the big punchlines is polyarchy and that's the idea polycentricity and polyarchy and this is really the idea of opt-in governance uh, uh yeah. or consent-based systems. If we migrate yes. to these consent-based systems, it's not to say that locally there's not going to need to be consensus mechanisms among people who live together. Um you might want to make a choice between say an intersection and a roundabout, but you know, all of these like territorial goods um through experimentation we can see how best to govern those. And you want to have small jurisdictions so you can vote with your feet because voting with your feet really holds account allows people to hold in by leaving a jurisdiction the power of exit is stronger than a vote for example yep. you live in california i live in texas my state is full of uh, of the exodus of californians who are just sick to death of the bay area and all of the mismanagement of that of that state in general uh no offense mm-hmm. brother you, i love your california <laughs> voice the, you know don't ever go away but um <laughs> but the idea you know but maybe you you know maybe you'll eventually come to Texas and see the benefits of superior governance i'm not saying it's perfect governance i'm just saying it's something you can escape to the more escape right. hatches the more the ability we have to reduce the cost of exit in any given system the more likely we are to have better systems emerge which can be replicated or certain features of which or properties of which can be re- replicated and chosen and we'll start to see a system where there's more of an alignment around your preference for civil association rather than having that be imposed in the associated culture of patriotism or whatever the fuck be inculcated. That old Westphalian right. nation state order is going away. It needs to die. And what's what can emerge is these this inter-systemic um, yes. governance options that people can choose. And when they do... We'll have governance by sweet talk, by persuasion, and not by coercion and standing armies. At least that's my hope.
0: Preach it, man. I think this is a great place to leave off. I think we hopefully have um, really opened the minds of our listeners. If you guys already weren't on this train, hopefully you were introduced to some Broader, deeper, more fundamental thinking about cryptocurrencies, smart contracts, distributed ledger tech, and their social implications, which are maybe a lot more profound than you were previously thinking, especially if you were just in these things to, you know, make a quick buck here or there or something because of the hype. So with that... I want to say goodbye to you all and thanks for dropping in and listening and please rejoin us again for a future episode of the social evolution podcast.